This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I'm Haley Stoddart. And I am Zach Moore. And we have some breaking news today. Well, today, whenever you're listening to this, it happened recently, if you're listening to this podcast, in the vicinity of when it was published. (laughs) So from the business (laughs) world, Mr. Ken Tripp has an update about the never-ending, will-they-won't-they Merger, won't they merge, of Paramount and CBS. So Ken Shrip with our business report. Ken, take it away. Hey, thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. As my own network won't allow me to post these updates where I want to, so I'm just going to tell you what's happening. So it, it, quite a while ago, um, towards the end of the year, when um, Les Moonves was uh, kicked out of CBS as another victim, he's not the victim, let me put it another way, as being a disgusting pig um, and the way he's treated women over the years as part of the Me Too movement. So he's not the victim, his other folks are, but he was eliminated from CBS. There's a big investigation going on there. And Les was the big person who was kind of stopping and halting and suing back to uh, CBS uh, uh, Viacom, who was trying to get a merger going with Paramount uh, over the last, oh, I don't know, year or so. So I think I've mentioned before that the sum of the parts are now greater than the sum of the whole for these businesses, and it's time to bring them back together. Since Moonves had left CBS, they have not filled the CEO role, and we believe that's on purpose so that they can actually get going with these talks pull these two companies back together, and then the CEO of Viacom would then naturally take over. So back in March, I had kind of updated you that behind the scenes, it looked like there was some activity going on. And now we've heard uh, from CNBC and multiple other sources that the uh, the talks are underway this month of June. And you know what's, what's tricky is um, you can never get any comments from the two companies once they begin the conversations. One, it's all supposed to be confidential, so no one's supposed to know. Uh, and leaking that kind of information can actually get people on either side of the company in a lot of trouble. So these are probably um, folks that are connected somehow, some way, with some of the internal workings of both companies. Because as you'll see, it'll st- it'll drive their stock prices artificially high if people get too much wind of it. But because this has been a rumor for a long time, 
and it actually makes sense for these two companies to come together. And then if they do come together, they're looking at another third option of actually purchasing Discovery Communications. So all the Discovery Channels and everything they own, Animal Planet, all kinds of things, in order to uh, increase their portfolio, um, make CBS All Access you know, eligible for Paramount Movies. Uh, but of course, for all of us, this would mean one trek, finally, back together where there's, there's no lines, no nothing. They could make movies. They could... Um, you know, expand the, the portfolio for Star Trek. They could go back and make, you know, any kind of movies they wanted with any of the different casts from the past, anything that, that was on TV. So that's the, the big news happening over there. We'll see how this winds up. Usually this stuff takes oof, uh, probably one or two months uh, to kind of negotiate. And then once they announce, they have about six months of due diligence while they get the bankings, the stock swaps, and all that stuff together. So that's it for CBS Paramount. Thanks for listening to our show, because otherwise, if you were trying to look for it on the Babel Conference, you won't find it. Thank you. <laughs> well, Ken, in the, in the 21st century, we work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. So we're not interested in such things as uh, commerce and... <laughs> In business so <laughs> no 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 that's why it's absolutely free to get into any star trek convention and they give their autographs away for free and you don't have to buy uniforms or anything everything's free because we're just bettering ourselves and they want to share that's how it works yeah that's why we love being star trek fans but thank you ken trip our business <laughs> correspondent so uh now Haley stoddard our kelvin timeline correspondent uh has an update about star trek 4 and how chris hemsworth turned down the part and he had more. It was more just about the contracts. He actually had some creative concerns. So Haley, why don't you take it away with this breaking news? Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of listeners have already seen this article, but if you haven't, we got news as to not only was it about money and how much Chris and Chris were going to get paid, which caused them to walk away, but apparently Chris Hemsworth was not crazy about coming back. Uh, whether in flashbacks or however they were bringing back Chris's dad. Uh, you know, I don't know about this. I wasn't crazy about this whole notion of, hey, we're going to time travel and we're going to see Kirk's dad again. So, yeah, he said... Um, to Variety, he said, I didn't feel like we landed on a reason to revisit that yet. I didn't want to be underwhelmed by what was going to... Uh, but why by what I was going to bring to the table. So clearly he wasn't sold on this idea, but then he did mention that maybe Idris Elba should come back in the fourth movie in some fashion, not necessarily as Crawl, but who knows? I don't know. Uh, what do you guys think about this? I mean, it makes sense. I wasn't sold on the notion of, hey, let's go back and find Kirk's dad. Well, obviously, Chris Hemsworth and Idris Elba are friends from doing the Thor movies together. So he's you know trying to help his friend get more work. And considering we never really saw Idris Elba as Idris Elba, I mean, that was kind of the twist of Beyond, and, and you saw a couple of clips. You could bring him back as another character. I mean, they did that very thing in Star Trek V and Star Trek VI with David Warner. So I love Idris Elba. Who doesn't? I wouldn't mind seeing him again. Maybe not in you know the fourth movie because he was in the third movie as a villain, but maybe down the road uh, in another Star Trek property. As for Chris Hemsworth himself, again, I make it clear that actually I do stand with the actors on all this because when you sign a contract, you make an agreement about, hey, we're going to pay you this much for the fourth movie. And they'll say, great. And then, and then they come back and say, hey, you know what? We kind of managed things poorly. We don't have enough money to pay you what we agreed. 
you know, I, I am 100% on the actor side for being like, no, we have a contract. You know, that's not fair. And uh, for as far as the story goes, I mean, yeah, I'm kind of with you there, Haley. It did seem like we're going to do time travel again, really, because that's really the only way to do it in a fulfilling way. I think if he's watching a message or a hologram or, or, or a flashback, that there's something unfulfilling about that, like bringing back dead characters is, is huge name actors as dead characters to make a glorified cameo. And I think would be ultimately disappointing. If you're going to hype up the movie is the return of Chris Hemsworth. It would have been like in generations, which in an early script of generations, this was the case. Picard just like watched a holographic message from captain Kirk. That was actually one of the, the options when they were figuring out how to put Kirk in generations. So anyway, I agree that, Hey, don't do it. If the story's not good either, so here we are. I mean, th- although Chris Hemsworth, I don't know if he's really in a position to turn down work for on that front because he, he did Ghostbusters 2016. He did Heart of the Sea. He did Black Hat. He seems to not, outside of playing Thor, he seems to really not catch fire with the box office for whatever reason. I think people people love Chris Hemsworth like as a guy and people love Chris Hemsworth as Thor, but people don't necessarily love Chris Hemsworth and all these other movies he's been trying to make. So I don't know. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, if he didn't like the, obviously the contractual thing was an issue. And if he wasn't a fan of like the story they were going for, who knows how far they got along in that story. Lots of reasons to turn it down. So ultimately, I think this is another nail in the, hey, Star Trek Four is never going to happen, especially not the one J.J. Abrams promised us at the premiere of Star Trek Beyond, starring Chris Hemsworth. So what are your thoughts on this, Ken? I agree with you, Zach. I, I Well, first, you know, as I've said a hundred times, I'm not a big fan of time travel, but yet Star Trek seems to pull it off magnificently. I don't know how or why, but it, they do. So the, the storyline from the very beginning was one of those, okay, we'll see where it goes, but... Kind of like you and Haley, I wasn't I wasn't that thrilled with the premise. I mean, to me, Hemsworth isn't a, a draw, uh, as he, you know, as you just kind of pointed out. Even Twelve Soldiers um, or Horsemen, whatever it was, uh, I did see the movie, you know, about the um, the early uh, special forces that were in Afghanistan. Great movie. He was in it, but again, it, it didn't do well at all. So I, I think he does struggle with. Um, I'm not saying he picks bad movies, but for whatever the draw there isn't huge, but. Like all things Star Trek, um, there's been uh, replete uh, with with examples of where they, honest to God, thought this would be the very last movie. This is it. It's not going to happen. Uh, I do not think Star Trek will f- four will happen uh, the way it was written. We know it won't with Hemsworth now. I do think there'll be other Star Trek films. I don't know if it's going to be Tarantino. I don't know if in a few years they're going to bring back this this cast. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was, was kind of cool was, uh, well, if the two networks do get back together, you know, they might be able to convince Anson Mount uh, to make a movie on a, you know, a pre-TOS. Oh, did I hear a squeak? I thought I heard some noise. Sorry. Um, but yeah, that, that could possibly happen. So, you, you know, those, there's, there's a lot of options, I think, for Star Trek in the future. Right now, it's having its, um, as they say in Canadian, renaissance. That's how Shatner pronounces it anyway, um, on, on television, or at least in the streaming networks, um, there's, there's lots of Star Trek, but you know, I want a movie. I really do. I'm greedy. I really do want another movie eventually. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I would like another film again. Um, I don't, I, I would like to see this cast kind of do a wrap up, you know, of, of their adventures and stuff like that. Um, and so it would be nice to see him, and it is kind of sad that, you know, it was those negotiations for their salary, and I understand that, you know, they 
we're promised something and I agree with Zach in that, you know, hey, pay the actor what you promised him. Um, but I also understand that sometimes they can't and they have to negotiate for that. But I do want another film. I, I really, really do. <laughs> with you, Ken. <laughs> See what happens. All right. Well, that's been our Star Trek news update for this time and place in the space-time continuum. If this is old news to you and you're hearing this years and months later, then, hey, it's a cool time capsule about what we thought might or might not happen <laughs> in the Star Trek world. So, yeah, yeah, especially if you're listening as you're driving to see Star Trek Four, That would be Starring Chris Hemsworth <laughs> and Chris Pine. <laughs> what do we know? Oh, boy. So um, this week on Standard River, we decided to open up the mailbag. We've gotten quite a few emails over the past few weeks and months and, and haven't really read them out on air. You know, Some of these we do reply to when we get a chance to on, on email, but wanted to give you guys your, your fair share of, of air time. So uh, we're going to just open up the mailbag here. And, and our first email is from Molly Hutt, and she says, Hi, I'm really enjoying listening to your show. I make triple throw pillows and was wondering if I might be able to donate one to give out to a listener in exchange for a mention on your show. You can find my Etsy store here. This is her link, guys. www.etsy.com slash shop slash triple O-R-P-H-A-N-A-R-I-U-M. That's triple orphanarium? I'm not sure what an orphanarium is. Oh, wait. Because they're orphans. Orphans. Is that mm-hmm. Orphan triples. Is that it, guys? Yep. That's got to be it. There it is. So the tri- so Etsy.com slash shop slash Tribble Orphanarium. Go check out Molly's Tribble Throw Pillows. She's also on Twitter and Instagram as at Adopt a Tribble. So there you go. So would you guys like a, a, a Tribble Throw Pillow? Which one of us is going to get this pillow? I actually uh, discovered this shop randomly when I was searching for fun Star Trek stuff on Etsy, and I totally plan on getting one for my kiddo because she's been asking for a Tribble. Uh, I have my Mirror Universe Tribble, but they don't like humans, so we kind of need one that's a little bit nicer <laughs> and not going to eat us. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I think it's fun. I, I think it's great. Well, Haley, I guess you're going to get that free pillow. We, we got an exchange for that on-air shout-out. There we go. I think it should go to Haley. Why not? So, yeah, I actually looked at her site, and uh, it's, it's more than just one color. You know, they have, like, the mm-hmm. brown shrivel. They have, like, it's like the shrivels are like cows. You know, there's, like, brown cows and, and spotted cows and black and white cows. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, variation. And they also have the, the animated series Tribble, which I thought was great, the pink Tribble. So that's a very, very inside baseball uh, thing for them to have. So, so thanks, Molly. Thanks for the email. Glad you enjoy the show. Hope you appreciate the shout-out. And send us another email, and we can discuss where you want to send uh, Haley her free Tribble throw pillow. There it is. Yeah, thanks, Molly. Well, I'll read the next one. And Lori, I am so sorry if I do not pronounce your name right. Uh, Lori Bose, maybe? Uh, Please let us know if we pronounce that wrong or not. And I apologize. Uh, She lets us know uh, Star Trek Season 2, Episode 19, A Private Little War. She wants to know why does Kirk's phaser look like an electric shaver instead of a pistol? Uh, hmm, good question. And I read somewhere that Charles Darwin on The Beagle was Gene Roddenberry's inspiration to include a science officer on the Enterprise. Thank you for all the time and effort you put into these shows. I listen to hours of these podcasts at work. Thank you for listening at work. I wish I could listen to work. Uh, what do you guys think about her uh, questions here? We get points, apparently. Internet points, if we get it right. 
Well, I'll, I'll take question one. Uh, okay, Ken, good. I'll let you take question two. Uh, so okay. it, in a private little war, we have uh, phaser one. The best episode to explain the difference between phaser one and phaser two is Devil in the Dark because mm-hmm. the, the, the miners on the Hordas planet have phaser one and Kirk's like, well, we have phaser two. And so they do this whole thing about phaser one versus phaser two. And the cool thing about the original series phasers are phaser one kind of fits into phaser two. So it's, it, it's, it's, um, it's an independent thing that then supplements. So it's like phaser two is like a, like a boosting frame for phaser one. That's the way I always see it. So I thought that was a really cool design. I assume Matt Jeffries designed the phasers. He did most of the other production design on the show but yeah that is and but i agree with you it does look much like an electric razor there are a lot of episodes where you get a close-up shot thinking of other episodes like a city on the edge of forever is another one where you get like a real close-up shot of the phaser and and it has it does have that kind of like grid mesh on it that that looks like a a razor Uh, and also has the uh you know has has the levels what level what level of shave do you want (laughs) you know uh you can see those knobs (laughs) there so so i totally see why why you see it as an electric razor but yeah uh private war is one of the ones that they they do feature uh phaser one quite a bit and uh yeah but apparently the the phaser one you know it's hard to use because um um tyree's wife really couldn't figure it out (laughs) In time, <laughs> near the end there. So uh, if she could, she she would have been able to to fight off her attackers with that phaser. But so anyway, that's my answer for question one. Hope you found that useful. Ken, why don't you take it away with uh, question two? Sure. So again, she read she wrote. I read somewhere that Charles Darwin on the Beagle was Gene Roddenberry's inspiration to include a science officer on the Enterprise. I have to say, I've done a lot of reading on um, on Gene Roddenberry and uh, checked out his biography many times. I'd never come up with that. Now, um, it could have been, uh, and I doubt this, but it could have been. I know we've talked a lot about whether or not the uh, Starfleet is military or civilian, right, or a space agency, right? Um, what what do we what do we call it, Zach? A, it is a peacekeeping and humanitarian armada, Ken. That's right. So thank you very much. But I, I do remember when we were talking about that one at one point. I had mentioned that the um, the Beagle. It's actually HMS Beagle was a naval vessel, uh, and in times of peace or whatnot, uh, whatnot, there's a lot of scientific and exploration and you know o- oceanographic surveys, mappings, all things that are that that actually the, um, the the different world's navies do do. So it does make sense that if um, if Roddenberry, when he was doing his research for the show, uh, noticed that uh, you know the, the Beagle, which was a science vessel. Uh, essentially, uh, on top of a naval vessel, uh, that they would have, you know, a science officer on board, uh, and that's that, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I I don't know if it was the inspiration or not. I cannot confirm it, but it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know if either one of you have come across any readings that that link the two together. This is the first time I've seen that. Was was when she wrote this? I haven't I haven't seen anything about it, but it it is interesting, and it it definitely could be a possibility. You never know. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah, I'd never heard that either. I'd always heard, you know, the whole Horatio Hornblower thing, but never about, mm-hmm. you know, Charles Charles Darwin. Yeah, obviously it was a science ship, and the, but I, I, there are probably elements in there, but I don't think it was a direct A to B inspiration. Yeah, yeah. But, hey, it worked out, and um, and I can't certainly say it's wrong. I, I no idea. Who, who knows what goes on in some people's heads that, you know, it's a ton of things that we know that we never share. Thank goodness. Right. So anyway, (laughs) definitely. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much for the email, Laurie. Appreciate it. 
Okay, I'm up next. This is from the Intergalactic Officers of Evil. The IOE. I like that. Uh, all right, so it says, hey guys, just came across your Facebook page and thought uh, to give you a shout. We are the Intergalactic Officers of Evil, the first dedicated Trekkie music band in the UK. We just released, uh, recently released our first EP this Monday, Space Adventures of the Mirror Universe, and we're wondering if you could support us and play it on one of your shows. Our EP can be found on Spotify, iTunes, and other digital streaming platforms. We're also happy to send you a download link if you prefer. We've got the link here. Any support from your side would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, IOE. Yeah, we'll check it out, and maybe um, this podcast will we'll, we'll share a little a little music from the IOE. I love that name, though, Intergalactic Officers of Evil. And it sounds so strange to be a dedicated Trekkie music band with that title, but I do appreciate it.
All right. So our next email is from David Kukol. And he says, hello, Ken, Zach, and Haley. As a Trek fan, nearing the age of 50, who grew up with the original series as the only Trek and saw each of the TOS movies in theaters, Standard Orbit is a show very close to my heart. Ken's warmth and intelligence, coupled with the fact that his favorite movie is also mine, we're going to need a bigger boat. Thank you for quoting Jaws, Ken's favorite movie of all time. Uh, (laughs) And uh, Zach's energy and humor. You're welcome. That's what I bring to the table. And Haley's unique perspective all combined to make a compelling podcast. I've missed a bunch of old episodes and have been catching up. I'm also an artist who exhibits my work in the Rhode Island area. I've drawn a piece of fan art for the Standard River crew and is wondering if there's an email address where I can send it. I don't do Facebook any longer as I found it too much work, LOL. Keep up the great work, people. Your show means a lot to me. Regards, David. Well, David, hey, thanks a lot for the compliments and the, and the, and the so rundown sweet. of what we all bring to the show. And also that you're an artist and created some art for us. That is amazing. And we will, we will find a way to incorporate that into Standard Orbit moving forward. So whenever fans do awesome work like that for us, we really appreciate it. We're just, we're just here talking into the internet. And you can receive kind of labors all like that from fans. It's the best. So thank you so much, David. Yeah, thank you so much. That's so very kind of you. All right, our next email comes from uh, Dylan Myers. He says, hey, all. The most recent episode mentioned the ship's A&A officer. Uh, and there's a link for Memory Alpha for archaeology and anthropology. One of our intrepid hosts said he had no idea why these fields were grouped together. He did not understand what the study of buildings had to do with the study of the movement of humans and animals. His statement would make sense if the A and A in A and A stood for architecture and biology. Anthropology is the study of human development and culture. Archaeology is a subfield of anthropology that examines human culture and development based on material remains. Hope this clarifies things. I really enjoy the show despite this nitpicking. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, uh, Dylan. For that, uh, I don't remember, so I don't know if either of you recall what we were talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was me. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- thanks, Dylan. Um, I, I, I actually I do appreciate uh, the clarification, and uh, I, I believe we were talking about Space Seed. We were talking about having a, a historical officer on board, and kind of how the the two were were, were tied together. I, I just remember saying that I, I wasn't sure what brought the, the two together. It didn't make any sense to me, you know, because I, I thought they were disparate and very different um, fields of study. And uh, obviously I was I was wrong. And uh, I can say that. I don't have to be like the Fonz where I'm going, rrr, rrr, rrr. I was wrong. Uh, but th- it was, no, this was, this was good to understand. And, uh, and um, when he sent, sent the link, it, it made even more sense. So it, it was fine. But uh, that, that's where that stemmed from. It was from a, a review or somehow Space Seed was in the conversation. And we were, we were just talking about, um, you know, uh, that, that one unique, we, I think it was a, a whole episode we did about the interesting skill sets that were on a starship. Yes, you know, yes, that, they, that, they that was that was the that's idea because we had all these yeah. we had all these positions like Lieutenant MacGyver's and Space Seed and Lieutenant Palamas and Who Mourns for Adonis and they had these very odd you know titles and then we had the meteorologists and so we kind of went down the odd jobs on the Enterprise and that that was that's, that's was, been right. out of that conversation yes so there it is so thank you Dylan um, and you know it was even kind not to point it out and point point me out by name but um, anyway <laughs> that's all good. All right, so, excuse me, let me read this next one here from Brad Alexander. It reads, hey guys, 
I know it is a long time since I wrote in, but I've been listening. This was a great topic. Kudos to Zach for coming up with the topic. I love the run-through of some of the odd jobs on starships. We see where this is all coming together now. That's cool that you were crypto and comm in the Navy. I guess he's speaking to me. In the Army, I was in satellite communications, and it was our unit's crypto key manager. I have a few questions, mainly for Ken. You guys were talking about the crew size of the Enterprise. According to one of the books from the 60s, either the technical manual or the making of Star Trek or something, the Federation heavy cruiser was about the same length as a four-stall class aircraft carrier about 1,000 feet. However, I think, it's un- I think it's an unfair comparison. An aircraft carrier has a crew complement of between five and 6,000. That's right, that's right, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise is a heavy cruiser. Kirk had a crew of 435, and Pike had around 200. I looked up the crew complement of a Ticonderoga-class missile cruiser, 30 officers and 300 crew, so it is in line with the cruiser. But that is something that bothers me. Everyone on the Enterprise seemed to be an officer. I was going to say that we didn't see a chief until O'Brien on TNG, but thinking back, we had a chief in TMP. Was that the first instance of a chief? And also interesting, I would like to go through the TOS to see how many officers are on the show, because given the 10 to 1 ratio of enlisted to officers, we probably went through most of the officer corps on the Enterprise, and seeing none of the rest of the crew is a 10 to 1 an average ratio for shipboard. I'm thinking about my detachment in the Army. So what he's listing is um, he had a captain, which is an 03 commanding officer, one uh, non-commissioned officer in charge, which is an E7, or in the Army, that's a sergeant first class, one ops NCO, an E6, one training NCO, a sergeant, four supervisors, E5 and E6, 16 to 20 troops. So that's 27 enlisted and one officer, thoughts, uh, Brad. So that's a very um, detailed email. Thank you for that, Brad. Um, you know, this is, the, it's funny, it's, it's an area that, that I've always focused on, and it's never really... Um, you know, other than than you and a couple others, nobody I think really looks at or, or has tried to drive a lot of correlation uh, as to why uh, everybody on uh, starships and, and most of the folk people that they focus on are always uh, senior officers, some junior officers, but they they don't get a lot of play. And I and I I see what you're saying. You're looking at the size of a vessel being a thousand feet long, being an aircraft carrier and five to six thousand, or a heavy cruiser which has more along the lines the same crew of the Enterprise. I get all those comparisons. I I would say this: the um, the folks that that made the original series were all World War II veterans. A lot of them Army Air Corps, um, very few Navy, uh, and and I think they aligned it the the best they could. Uh, I also think that, in fairness, you know, most of the strategic decisions uh, on any ship are made by the officers, which is why they would get most of the focus. Where I always struggled with Star Trek is, um, you know, I'm sure all the red shirts, uh, for the most part, were enlisted, but every time they mentioned them by name, it was Lieutenant so-and-so. <laughs> it's, it is kind of funny there. Um, we did have chiefs in the original series. You had Chief Kyle uh, and, and a few others uh, that were you know, manning the uh, the transporters or whatnot that were that were referred to chief quite often. So there were some enlisted in the original series that you could hear every now and then. And then, of course, um, we had Chief DeFalco in the motion picture who took over the navigation station for ILEA. Uh, most of the technical jobs in and around the bridge would certainly be enlisted, uh, but they're officer in this world. 
And I think the ratio of 10 to 1 seems to make sense for any ship. And that's why uh, it's, it's different in the Navy than it is in the Army, where the Army has far more enlisted uh, than they do officers just because of the nature of their job. So a lot of good conversation there for me. Hopefully it didn't um, get too many wearied-eyed as, we as we were going through it because I happen to really like this stuff. And I think just like everyone else, everything is context. Uh, when you watch your Star Trek, uh, you, you frame it to, to what you know, and uh, it doesn't matter what you do. So obviously me being in the Navy for so long uh, and, and seeing a Starfleet as a naval force, uh, you would like to see that. And plus, you also want to recognize that there are people that are that are technicians, really solid, well-educated people that could perform a lot of these duties. Uh, I just think it's for simplicity's sake um, and, you know, for the most part, as the generations have gone on in making Star Trek, very few with military experience or understanding. Uh, they've, they've just kind of um, taking the same architecture that was built up in TOS and have kept that kept that flowing so that it's consistent. And it makes sense to me. Uh, we didn't see any of that change with Discovery or any of the new series. So I'm assuming that, um, you know, it'll just be very uh, officer centric with um, a very set amount of ranks, about seven or eight uh, that they use. And it'll it'll make it easy for people to identify who does what on the ship. End of speech. Thank you, Brad. Anything from you two on this? No, but thank you for the explanation. It definitely makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious now to go through and and watch a maybe list because I I do want to know how many of people were not necessarily officers. Yeah, I think it's interesting to run down, try to continue the correlation between the Navy and Starfleet because that was a direct inspiration. You know, I think about uh, Enterprise in the third season when they brought on the Makos, and I was like, cool, that's like bringing you know Marines onto a Navy ship. That's kind of the way I, not having any military you know experience myself, I kind of equated that. I thought that was a cool, like different, there are different people in these organizations that serve different purposes and they're all working together on this ship instead of like, it's in so-and-so, Lieutenant so-and-so. Uh, so it's a little, it's, it's a little more complicated than, than people may, may have otherwise thought. So thank you for that in-depth rundown, Ken, in response to, uh, response to Brad's questions. Yeah, th- thanks. I, I think the show that actually got it the the best was the um, the new se- the the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, uh, where they really did um, show you uh, where the lines were drawn, the technical expertise of the enlisted, um, you know, the folks working the flight deck, the folks working in CIC. You'll find that it had it had pretty much the right mix as a real warship. Even though the ranks are a little bit different, um, you know, commander is kind of top of the line versus a captain. But otherwise, um, the differences, uh, I think I think the mix was right. And I think they actually made an effort to get it right. And, and that's that's really if you want to see, you know, what a ship and how it would function, um, it, how it would operate. I think Battlestar Galactica is probably the, the better show for, for having that right mix officer enlisted um, duties and specialties along those lines. So Colonel Teague was the first officer there. Mm-hmm. How does that fit to the chain of command, Ken? Well, in my opinion, what they, they, they kind of have a mix. As you saw on Battlestar Galactica, they actually do have Marines uh, on board. Uh, and just like the Army and the Navy, I'm sorry, the Navy and the Marine Corps are the same department, and we work side by side, there are plenty of Marines on, on, on naval vessels. There's no reason why um, people that go up the, the Marine Corps side of the house uh, couldn't establish um, rankings and actual jobs on board ships. And I think they're just more integrated on the Galactica. That is my fan canon on that. That's why you see 
both Navy and traditional, what I will saw, you know, call um, it, uh, the Navy's ranking system is the one that's unique. Uh, the other three services for the officers are identical, right? So you go from uh, lieutenant junior grade all the way to general in all those ranks, but you'll, you'll find them side by side. You see that a little bit uh, in Star Trek. You had Colonel West, which is the same rank as a captain, uh, and he wore the same insignia. So I assume maybe he was a Mako or a Marine, you know, along those lines in Starfleet. So they, they, they do kind of put those lines together. Uh, and that's how you see the differences, I believe, on Galactica. Because they, they talk to a lot of petty officers and chiefs uh, actually, you know, running the ship and all that stuff. But then the, 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 um, the Marine soldiers have, have more of their, their ranks, the privates, the sergeants, things along those lines. Fascinating stuff. And yes, Battlestar Galactica does have kind of an air of authenticity kind of across the board. And I think that's part of that tapestry there, what you're talking about, that attention to detail. Ronald Dean Moore, his first big show after Star Trek. So if you haven't watched BSG, definitely check it out for all those reasons and many more. So again, thanks for your thoughts, Brad. And uh, the next email is from uh, Will Wright. And uh, this was kind of in response to when we had John Tenuto on talking about the different uh, home video releases of Star Trek 2, and then he came back and talked about Star Trek 4 as well. And uh, he just sent us a website, and it's tosbldvhs.blogspot.com. That's tosbldvhs.blogspot.blogspot. You know what? It's TOS. <laughs> this is the website, all right? It's a lot of letters, okay? I have respect for radio people that have to say things like phone number 713 you know, real fast twice before we had the internet and links. But but so this is a website, and it has attempted to document all of the home video releases of Star Trek over the years. So I think it's pretty cool because, again, here's the website. Write it down this time, guys. It's tosbldvhs.blogspot.com. And... What uh, now? I don't. I don't know if Will himself has made this site or this is one he found as a resource. Uh, but the the title of the of the site is History of Star Trek TOS on Consumer Home Video, uh, Beta VHS DVD, uh, etc. RCA Video Disc. So it's real cool because it, there, there is different categories and article postings about. Um, all the all the things that you remember seeing in the store back in the day, right? They have uh, pictures and scans and screen caps of uh, those releases. You know some of the special features that you might not know about uh, the Columbia House box sets, which are like uh, these big clamshell sets. You have the the laser discs. You have the original DVD releases, the the Blu-rays. So a lot of effort has been put into kind of chronicling and documenting this stuff. And it's really cool because just scrolling through the site, I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that display, you know, back when I was a kid somewhere. And then it just, I never thought about that again. I mean, they even have the animated series on here. There's a, there's a laser disc box set of the animated series on here. Like anyway, if, if you just want to really dive in and, and, and spend a lot of time on a rabbit hole on the internet, just perusing through Star Trek home video releases and, and uh, advertisements, artwork, inserts, screen caps, things like that. It's really cool time capsule. So, so I do recommend the website that I mentioned earlier, and I will not see it again because I got it right, and I think I don't want to test my luck and have to say it again and be wrong. So, that, so there you go. So thanks for that link, Will. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I totally want blogspock.com to exist now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can we look into that domain name? Because I think that'd be perfect for Star Trek. 
Our next email comes from Doug Alexander. He says, Ken's comment about rank, insig rank insignia, wow, I need more coffee, reminded me of a windmill that I often tilt at without results. I recall that in the days of the Brown Shoe Navy, LTCDRs were often in, uh, commander, in command of destroyers and even frigates. Kirk was the youngest officer to be given command of a starship, so I find it very easy to imagine that he was a uh, lieutenant commander who was captain of the ship and so would have been addressed as captain. Of course, that would make Spock a lieutenant and Scotty a JG, neither of which rank works. In Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Captain Crane was a CRD in whatever service it was that he served in. So even on TV, there's precedence. Thanks for a wonderful show. Uh, Ken, since this is kind of directed at you, uh, do you have any comments on this? Uh, yeah, I interesting. So... Um... He's talking, just so everyone knows, and it's even been pointing out on, on Star Trek episodes sometimes, that uh, regardless of your rank, if you're in charge of the ship, you will be addressed as captain. So even if your rank isn't captain, you are a captain, period. Um, and you don't change your rank insignia on your uniform, by the way. So if you are a, um, a young junior officer uh, who gets command of a ship uh, for whatever, you know, people are killed or whatever, he'll be addressed as captain, but he, he or she does not change his uniform. And I think that's that's what he's really talking about here is that because Kirk, uh, before uh, TNG, uh, announced that there was a, an officer that was even younger than him that became uh, captain of a starship, you know, he's assuming that he must have been a lieutenant commander. And his rank insignia on his sleeve, the one in Star Trek, actually matches that of a lieutenant commander in the Navy. Two hard stripes with one broken stripe. So it's, it's just... Um, Again, it's it's the way they, they did it. He really wasn't a lieutenant commander. He was a full captain. Spock was a lieutenant commander in the first season, then a commander in the next two seasons was promoted. So I think that's that's how it all works. And I think he was talking, I think he just misspelled um, CRD. He meant to say CDR. So Captain Crane was a commander in the service that he was in, but because he was in charge, he was called captain. So that's my quick response there. So there's no like Velcro, like just, oh, I'm going to take this one and stick it on, kind of like O'Brien does in... TNG when he's got constant different rate changes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not work that way. Okay. <laughs> Lots of rank questions and insignia questions, Ken, this week. So I'm glad you're here to, to answer these for us. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I enjoy it. Not sure about the rest of the listening audience, but I certainly do. So I'm happy about it. I think it's fascinating. I mean, my I was when I was married my he was in the Air Force and so I kind of had a brief understanding of their rankings so I find it quite interesting and then my dad where he worked at uh, the Navy was out there for a long time um, and still out there they're not there in the capacity that they are that they were but so it's quite interesting actually. Well, that's good. Now, Air Force you think the Navy is hard enlisted Air Force? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. It's a mess. Uh, yeah, and I don't is. mean that in any disrespectful tone. It's no. just, it is very unique. And um, uh, instead of stripes, they have flights and things. It's, yeah, you have to get up close to even understand what rank they are, unless they're an officer and then everybody's the same. So it makes it simple. Yeah, it, it really was kind of confusing and trying to learn it all. So definitely for sure. 
Yeah, and I think all these things, they kind of add to that tapestry of the Star Trek universe. You got people making spreadsheets and flowcharts about, okay, if so-and-so has this rank over here, how does it correlate to this Commodore over here? And, and the, what, what, is the, what is the chain of command and the hierarchy of Star Trek? And the, these are these things that people have, you know, we, they say fanon and headcanon. Like, over the years and years, these technical manuals that have been written, like, they, they extrapolate what we see on screen and create this, this really cool tapestry of, you know, this, the Star Trek universe and how it works and how it functions. And it has this 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 weight to it and this believability to it that a lot of other franchises don't bring. And I think that that's just another pillar in, in the whole Star Trek universe right there. This Starfleet, how it works, what the ranks are, what the incidences are. It just there's just so many factors. I mean, we've, we've talked about so many things in this mailbag, and that's what's fun to get the to to, to hear kind of what you guys, what what you're into Star Trek is, what what you really want to dive in too deep. And, and so I, again, thank you guys for bringing up the, these these unique questions for us. Yeah, I like it. Like I said, it's fun for me. So, all right. We go to uh, Adam Stacy. He writes, uh, actually, to me, Ken, just started listening to Standard Orbit and love the show. Terrific analysis. You guys are channeling all the discussions I've had in my head about TOS. Well, that's a good thing. So, I just listened to the Battle of the Battles, episode 174. Wow, it's almost 100 episodes ago. About Star Trek II versus Six battle, and it reminded me of my own feelings going to the theater. I remember Kirk command uh, an upbeat ship in Star Trek II, get outmatched by a lesser ship while running the ship on automatic with a bridge crew only in Star Trek III, and then watch him in command a faulty, bug-ridden brand new ship with a skeleton crew in Star Trek V with the transporters not even working. And finally, I saw him command a fully staffed, fully operational vessel in Star Trek VI. Yes, I thought, I finally get to finally see Kirk in command of a vessel working perfectly with hundreds of officers. And then, in the first 30 minutes, he's off the bridge. Spock is commanding the ship. I was so pissed. When he finally gets back on board, all we get to see him do is have the Enterprise be a punching bag for the cloak Klingon ship. Great plan. Step one, go to Kittimer. Step two, three question marks. Step three, save the peace conference. We never got to see the Enterprise at her best, going against an opponent at their best in the whole movie series. Almost as bad as the genius who said, let's do another Star Wars series, but we'll give Han and Leia about five minutes of screen time and give Luke and Leia about three minutes and never have all three on the screen at the same time. <laughs> so, Adam, uh, I know where you're coming from on this. I really do, because, uh, and I think that um, there's a lot of us out there that feel the same way. That start that the that the USS Enterprise is as much a character as any other person on the show, and because I'm such a huge fan of TMT, T, the original uh, motion picture, and they made such a beautiful, beautiful starship, uh, a powerful starship, uh, meant to be the flagship, so to speak, with this new innovative ship that they they've created, um, and we do see her at her best in that movie. I mean, she is she is outmatched, but she definitely, you know, can, can survive the shields where the Klingons couldn't. Um, they get the engines right. And we're looking forward to this ship being kind of the uh, the class, just like they did in TNG, right? The way they, they, they treated um, the Enterprise D was the way we wanted the Enterprise to be treated through the movies. This is just speaking for me, I think, and Adam. And then when they, you know, in Star Trek II, all of a sudden she ages 20 years, she's a training ship. It's like, 
why? And then in Star Trek 3, she's destroyed. In Star Trek 4, she's not until the end. In Star Trek 5, she's a joke. In Star Trek ship, she, uh, 6, she gets beaten up and decommissioned. So the poor ship really is not represented well uh, at all in the movies. And I, I just think that um, if there was one thing that was missed in the making of, of these movies was the reverence that the fans had for the ship, that a lot of us had for the ship. Um, and they, you know, it, it kind of goes that way in the in the uh, in the next movies for um, for the next generation for whatever reason, you know they they enjoy watching the Enterprise getting the you know what kicked out of her or destroyed or flying into things or whatnot. It it's just a common theme and it's a shame uh, because I think that uh, a lot of us would have loved to have seen a, uh, a a ship that was treated with the reverence it was in the original series. You know, like a real honor to command her, very, very powerful, nobody messes with her, uh, and when they do, it, it becomes, a, you know, a mono mono great battle, and they, they just don't capture that at all in the movies, in any of them, even the new ones to a degree, they really don't capture it well, so, uh, you know, into darkness it gets slaughtered, and by beyond it's destroyed, I mean, you just go on and on, the Enterprise is the um the movie version of a punching bag and uh, it's it's one thing that i wish all of the writers for all the different um movies across all of them could have done a lot better in my opinion end of speech yeah it seems in the uh, spin-offs the uh, the ships <laughs> the ships get more and more uh able to withstand attack and more durable because i mean voyager goes to the whole delta quadrant Destroys board cubes and all kinds yep. of things. It's fine. No problem. You know, um, the, the Defiant, you know, it was kind of built to be a, a tough little ship. So, uh, and hey, even it blows up, you know. The it, end yeah, of it Space makes Nine. its demise. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then, you know, the, the Enterprise in X01 goes through the whole, you know, Zindi War arc and it's okay. Uh, so, but, you know, I guess that is a. I mean, in the original series, right, you had your episodes like, you know, Balance of Terror and maybe a couple other ones, but you didn't really have a lot of space combat. They just didn't have the special effects for it, I understand. And then, you know, you go to the movies, and, and that, that's the perfect time. And that, that that's and I, I totally get the, the disappointment from you, Adam, because, like, okay, good, we have the budget. <laughs> we can see what we always wanted to see, and it's still kind of relegated to your imagination, you know. I mean, I mean, to that point, maybe they, you know, they didn't really have the budget after the motion picture, right? I mean, it's Star Trek 2. Not like we wanted, no. A great battle. Yeah, Star Trek 3, I mean, as much as I love Star Trek 3, as you all know, it's it's, and it's really exciting for like five minutes in that the bird of prey meets the Enterprise, but then after that, it's one shot, you're dead, and one of the shot blows up, you know, the, the one of the ships blows up, and you're on uh, the other ship now. So, totally get it. Um, perhaps one day, we'll get the, the balance of terror equivalent on the big screen, and we can all be satisfied by seeing what these ships really can do when they're at full capacity. Well, I think that's the interesting thing. We very much, the ship is a character. It's just like Kirk, Spock, Bones, you know, and so we don't want, we want to see it at its best because we get to see all of our actors at their best and sometimes not at their best. And that's sadly kind of all we've seen from the ship is kind of not always at her best as far as the films go. So maybe someday if we'll get a Star Trek four, not likely, but yeah, maybe. that. <laughs> The the new Enterprise, eh? Maybe she'll she'll be treated with a kind of reverence. I, and I think that's a part of the reason why, as as you guys were speaking, and I was reading all of this or whatnot. As much as I love um, the various Star Trek series, and I do, uh, 
because the Enterprise to me is as much a part of Star Trek as anything, um, it's it's always a little tougher. You know, I mean, what was the draw for Discovery at the end, right? The Enterprise shows up, and and I was I was so excited to see the Enterprise come back um, because that's a main character. I mean, everybody loved. Um, uh, Captain Pike and all the all, and Spock and all that other stuff. To me, the Enterprise was the biggest draw. Always will be. Um, that is to me when you know they say Spock is the emblem of Star Trek. There's no doubt. But to me, it it, will, it has been and always will be the Enterprise. All right. Well, we have one final email. It's kind of an extra, kind of peripherally <laughs> connected to us, but we are mentioned uh, from we Robert mentioned, Vaughn, yeah. uh, and he says, "Hi all. Just wanted to send you all a thank you message." As with the help of you and the other Trek of M shows, Warp 5, Standard Orbit, The Edge, Earl Grey, you have helped me rediscover my love for Trek. I've been a fan for as long as I can remember, but I kind of drifted away as I got older. With the return of Star Trek to cinema screens, theaters, and Discovery on television, my interest was back, but it was the discovery of all the great shows on Trek FM, which has made me love Trek again. So thank you all. And that's from Justin Oser over at Earl Grey. He forwarded that over to us. So, So thank you. Rob, I think that's a great way to, to end it here. You know, that's a, this is what fandom is all about. We're sitting here, we're talking, we're sharing ideas, we're having a good time, and we're kind of reinvigorating and supporting our Star Trek fandom. Because, you know, I, I think as we all, we, we've all gotten into listening to podcasts because we have an interest in something and we want to engage with it more. And podcasts are such a great way to do that because you can, you know, they're on the drive with you. You're out mowing the lawn, right? What, you know, the, the things you can do while you listen to a podcast are kind of your friends along the way. And that's what we try to do. So thank you so much, Rob. Yeah, I'm not going to stick my leg through a Picasso on that one. You said that perfectly, Zach. Very well done. And thank you, Rob. Definitely. Thank you. All righty, guys. Well, mailbags aren't the only <laughs> thing we're talking about this week on Trek FM. <laughs> Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I, I really like that concept of Titan being an extremely diverse ship because, yeah, like like you say, you know, we see mostly either humans or aliens who look like humans or have, you know, forehead appliances and that sort of thing. So to really get to stretch that and show us something new and different, I think is really cool. Standard Orbit. <laughs> Pike, he was like a pseudo father figure to Kirk in the Kelvin timeline, which might have been a little on the nose because he's like, he's the previous captain is the father figure of the new captain. But I understood why they did it, you know, for story efficiency. And I, and I did really buy their bond, you know, Bruce Greenwood and Chris Pine. I bought that bond. Earl Grey. There's a line where Deanna says to O'Brien, I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the same as a, a super string? So, he's like, oh, no, no, no. He's like, no, 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 they're completely different. <laughs> it's totally different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Obviously. The orb. One of the things I was just really struck by is just the way in which this episode is so relevant today. And part of that has been the unfortunate way in which our culture has changed for the worse um, to see this happen in in much more regularity of people jumping on something and jumping on things even though they may not have all of the information but believing something to be true even without all the pieces of evidence to actually make it true and that's what else is happening on trek.fm 
So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Trekkie01D. You can also hear me talking about both Discovery and the Orville over on the Fandom Podcast Network's Discoville podcast that drops every week. So thanks for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>